recall that there is a chorus that never stops in heaven. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, we saw that continually in heaven that uh, four living creatures cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is, what's the rest? Is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And it says that they do this night and day. They cry out this. When Isaiah was given a vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6, what he saw were these seraphim who stood even above the Lord and said, Holy is the Lord God Almighty that the earth is full of his, what, do you know? Glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Last year, Tara and I were not here on the first Sunday of the year. We were away, and the place where we was, where we were, we was, where we was hanging out, uh, the pastor of that service preached a sermon uh, that was called How to Win in 2010. That was his sermon. And I uh, was excited about the title, but I was not excited about how it played out because he didn't use his Bible. And I was like, I wanted to send him a note, How to Win in 2010. Use your Bible, first of all, when you preach. So that sounds mean, doesn't it? It's not mean. I don't speak for myself. I speak for the Lord, and so should every pastor. If it's a man just speaking to you, then it's not going to do us any good. And so I've decided we're going to do a sermon, How to Make It to Heaven in 2011. All right? (laughs) Who's ready to go? (laughs) Most of us. And if we do it before April, we don't have to pay taxes. So it's not true. You have to pay taxes after you die, just so you know that. The government gets you even after you die. What about that? Anyways... As we begin this year, what we've sung about today, uh, Lord, take my life. Lord, reign in me. Holy, holy is the Lord. Friends, we, we don't want these to be just songs in 2011. We want these to be true of our lives, don't we? Don't we want God to reign? Don't we really want God to have all of us? And is that true this morning? And so we're going to begin this first Sunday and even this, this first part of the year thinking on holiness and there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, something I'm very excited about. Our leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention, the Southern Baptist Convention president is a guy by the name of Bryant Wright, pastors of church in Atlanta called Johnson's Ferry. And one of the things that he's asking Southern Baptist churches to consider in January, which we will most likely do it in February, but to consider holding what's called a solemn assembly. And if you'll remember when we walked through the minor prophets, we saw in Joel there's a solemn assembly. And What is a solemn assembly? Well, I wrote to you in the connection if you received that already, but you'll see a solemn assembly is one in which we are reminded of who God is. We're reminded of who we are. We're reminded of our need of God and our need to sometimes repent and return to God. And I'm excited that as a denomination, our convention is desirous of returning to this. Even our state president, Rod Masteller, has spent the past year saying, you know what our churches need? Is holiness. You know what our churches need is God's spirit. And I'm excited about that, about our denomination and about our convention. Another reason why we should start here is we begin a new chapter today and we need the Lord's guidance. What's next as we enter this phase of Cross Point's history? And we need his wisdom and provision just as he's done in the, in the previous ones. And the other reason that we would begin with holiness is we, we don't need to just consider it today. Friends, if we, would t- if we would consider God's holiness every day in 2011, it would make a huge difference in this year. you agree with that? I agree with that. 
So, in doing so, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to focus on just a few verses here from Peter's writing in his first epistle that he writes to God's elect, chosen through the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ. Never forget what we were chosen for, for obedience to Jesus Christ. I'll ask you to stand with me. We're going to read verses 13 through 16 in 1 Peter chapter 1 as we consider holiness. Here's what Peter writes under the influence of the Spirit, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Father, we thank you that you've preserved this text that we may encounter it today. We pray for your spirit to anoint your word. This is an incredible word in which you are going to say to us that you are holy and that you don't want us just to know that you're holy. You want us to be holy. And yet we'll see in this passage, in your word here in First Peter, that the only means for this is Christ Jesus. Father, would you help us not to waste 2011? Would you help us to strive for holiness, as the author of Hebrews says? For without it, we will not see you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Three simple points this morning. There's not a sermon outline on purpose in your, in your guide, but we will, I'll make the notes available online. For those of you who are OCD and panic and want to get every note, they'll be available online this week. But perhaps we just need to encounter the word of the Lord. You're free to take notes and write it on your tear-off card. <laughs> and uh, and keep that. But three simple points this morning. The very first one is this: God is holy. The second one is that God expects His children to be holy. And the third point from this passage is that in Christ, God gives all the holiness He requires. In Christ, God gives all the holiness He requires. But let's start with the first one: God is holy. How many of you? That's the first time you've ever thought of that. It's the first time you heard that this morning. How many of you have heard before, at least once, that God is holy? Let me ask a second question then. What difference does that make in your life? What difference is it making in our lives that God is holy? Look in our text here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter's quoting from Leviticus in verse 16. He says, since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God is talking to the Israelites there in Leviticus, and he's giving them some instructions about the Levitical code. But what Peter has now done is he's going to say, look, this isn't a word just for the Israelites. This is a word for all of us who are in Christ. And particularly, he's going to say this, God is holy. Now, I want you to hold your place in First Peter and turn back to a passage that we've considered before in Exodus, but I want us to be reminded of that. Turn back to Exodus chapter 19. Because when we say God is holy... Sometimes we can uh, let it pass right by us and we're not sure we grasp all that that means. In Exodus 19, God has been leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Remember that? How many of you saw the Prince of Egypt? All right. I often say if we would put the whole Bible to cartoon, then more of us would know it. All right. So Exodus 19, God has been leading them out of Egypt, and and now he's going to have a meeting with them. And here's how it takes place. In Exodus 19, beginning on verse 16, 
On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very large trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Now let me pause right here and say, if you've been driving down airline this morning, and you happen to see smoke and fire on top of the bubble this morning, and the bubble trembling, and this ginormous noise that grew louder and louder, how many of you think you would have driven on down to Parkview? Anybody? All right, we kept on going this morning, right? Here's the incredible thing about God's holiness. God has descended on this mountain, and God has given specific instructions prior to this to say, look, you've got to set boundaries, because if you don't set boundaries, I will pour out on them. I will pour out on them. They will be destroyed. My holiness will consume them because of their own sin, because of sin in their lives. God's holiness was so significant that there had to be boundaries or the people would have been killed. And so then there's this massive scene that we see, and the people are scared. And I think I would be. We read these words, and it says, and the people trembled. And we just go on with our life, as if God's holiness shouldn't cause us to tremble, as if God's holiness shouldn't cause us to have a pause to consider. Another famous one, keep turning to the right, Isaiah chapter 6. How many of you have ever studied that passage before? Sometimes in the new year, we don't need something new. We need to be reminded of something very old. In Isaiah 6, we see another scene. And it says this, beginning in verse 1. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here's one that we often consider when we think about God's holiness. Isaiah is granted a privilege for whatever reason. In the year that Uzziah Uzziah dies, Isaiah gets to see a little glimpse of God. And really what he sees, he sees God on the throne in a sense, but really he sees the train of his robe. And just seeing the train of his robe and encountering this much of God's holiness causes Isaiah to say, I'm undone. Almost as if I'm bursting. I I am finished at this point. That's Isaiah's encounter with God's holiness. We see the encounter in Exodus. How many of you remember the Mount of Transfiguration? What what did Peter and the disciples do when they see Jesus in his full glory? Do you remember what they do? It says they fall down as if they were dead, which for the first part was really good because it was the first time Peter was silent. Peter just kept talking, talking, talking. God's like, let's stop this, you know. And so Peter falls down as if he's dead when he sees God's glory as it's reflected there in Jesus. As we continue on in our study in Revelation that we've been doing, do you notice what happens often, right? They bow down and they worship as they see God and his holiness. Friends, God's holiness is something that we should encounter. Let me share a few verses with you. Psalm 71 says this in verse 22. I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you, O Holy One of Israel. Psalm 78, they tested God again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, the Holy One of Israel. 
Psalm 99, verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Anything being repeated here? God is holy, God is holy, God is holy. We hear that word, but now let's talk. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means this. First of all, it means God does not just know what's right, but he determines it and he always does it. What does it mean for God to be holy? It's not just that God knows what's right, friends. He determines what's right. He is the very essence of what is right, and he does it. How many of you have ever found that sometimes doing the right thing has caused you to hesitate a little bit? How many of you have known that there was something you should do, but you paused a little bit? God never pauses. God never hesitates. God always does the right thing. This is what it means when we say God is holy. All of God's thoughts and actions are right. All of God's thoughts and actions are right. What about ours? What, what kind of thoughts did you have after you unwrapped presents? Some you wanted, some you did not. All right? What about your thoughts? What about our acts? All of God's are right and pure. This is what it means for God to be holy. One thing that we can know is all God's actions toward us are always perfect and just. For God to be holy, it means that all of God's actions toward us are always perfect and just. Let me give you another. What does it mean for, for God to be holy? It means God is free from all evil. God is free from all evil. Complete absence of evil. Nowhere near him. Completely free. Number three, and this is one of my favorites. It means his power is holy power. His mercy is holy mercy. His wisdom is holy wisdom. Now let me help you process that. How many of you know what it means for God to be omnipotent? What does that mean? He's all-powerful. What does it mean for God to be omnipresent? All right, so God is all-powerful, and he's everywhere at the same time. And his omniscient, what does omniscient mean? He knows everything. So what if you had a God who was all-knowing, who was all-powerful, and was everywhere, but wasn't holy? What would you think about that? How many of you would be afraid of a God like that? How many of you would know that that's what you see often in Roman mythology and the things that we see, these gods that are powerful, that have to be appeased, but aren't always full of good intentions, the things they do? Friends, don't miss this. When God is omnipotent, friends, it is holy omnipotence. When it is omniscient, it is holy omniscience. And when it is omnipresence, it is holy omnipresence. Friends, how many of you think we should be grateful God is holy, that there's no evil in it, that he's absolutely pure? How many of you doubt that God is holy? Any questions? How many of you would say, I believe God's holy? And we're here today. We see it. All right, we see it from the text. Let me challenge you in, in a couple other, other things here before I move on to our second point. I want to finish a couple right here on God's holy. The first one being this. One of the clearest places that we can see God's holiness displayed is his treatment of Christ on the cross. One of the clearest places, when you say, what does it mean for God to be holy? One of the clearest pictures you're given, friends, is his treatment of Christ on the cross. God pours out his wrath towards sin. God pours out his wrath towards injustice. He's being just, and he's punishing our sin. And we want a God who doesn't let sin slide. We want a God who does what's right. And one of the clearest pictures of what it means for God to be holy is what he does to Christ on the cross. And we'll get back to that. John the Baptist and many others, including Jesus, had a very simple thing that they said. God is king. Stop disobeying him. 
can't be any more simple than that, friends. God is king. Stop disobeying him. John the Baptist's phraseology was, repent and return to God. My way to help you understand that is, God's in charge. Stop disobeying him. That's for the whole world, but particularly those who would be his people. We see in the beginning of 1 Peter here, Peter's writing back and he's saying, since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Friends, I just want to remind you on the first Sunday of the year, God's holy. But now I need you to know something else. God does not just want us to acknowledge it. God does not want us just to sing holy, holy, holy. God expects that of us. God expects his children to be holy. That's point number two. God expects his children to be holy. How do you know that? Well, I read the Bible. The Bible says this in verse 14 of our text. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. In all your conduct, friends. In all your conduct. In everything you do in 2011. That we would be holy. For it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So verse 15 says, the one who called you is holy. You are to be holy in all your conduct. And then he quotes from Leviticus, because he's holy, we are to be too. Hold your place in First Peter, and I want you to turn back to First Thessalonians chapter 4. Turn back to First Thessalonians chapter 4. So the one who calls us is holy. So repeat after me. The one who called me is holy. His call is holy. So it's not only that God is holy, but even his call is holy. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, here's what Paul says, beginning in verse 1. Ready? Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to live and to please God just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. He said, look, we've told you how to please God. Do it more and more. And he said, the good thing about them is you are doing that. Do it more and more. What about us, friends? Would Paul say this to us? We've told you how to live to please God. You are doing it. Do it more and more. And we'll talk about in a moment why we do that. But he says, do it more and more. Verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So friends, using First Peter and First Thessalonians, not only is God holy, the one who calls us, but the very calling in which he calls us is holiness. He calls us. It is a holy call that is extended to us, and he expects us to be holy in all we do and think. Jerry Bridges has written a book called uh, Pursuit of Holiness, and I walked a class through that multiple years ago. Now it feels like, right? Here's a quote from what Bridges says. We may trifle with our sins or excuse them, but God hates them. We may trifle with our sins or excuse them, but God hates them. He goes on to say, every time we sin, we are doing something God hates. Now, how many of you think if you meditated on that, it might make a difference in whether you engaged in that activity? 
So you think about what we do this afternoon or this evening. And if you were to pause and say, God hates what I'm about to do. Perhaps we might be moved to obedience, right? Unless we just don't give a rip about what God hates or not. And then that's a whole nother trouble. But every time we sin, we're doing something God hates. He hates our lustful thoughts, our pride and jealousy, our outbursts of temper, and our rationalization that the end justifies the means. I can do this because the end is worth it. I I can do this area of disobedience because the end will be worth it. (laughs) Friends, when is sin worth it? When is sin okay? We need to be gripped by the fact that God hates all these things. We become so accustomed to our sins, we sometimes lapse into a state of peaceful coexistence with them, but God never ceases to hate them. Friends, in 2011, I don't want to be in a happy coexistence with disobedience. I don't want to be in a happy coexistence with sin. Why? Because God expects holiness of me. Because God is holy. And he expects that of his children. And he hates it. And remember what we saw in Romans 12? Hating evil. Clinging to what's good. It's not just that we want to avoid evil. We want to have the same hatred that God has for it. Produce that in us. Why does God expect this of us? Let me give you two reasons. Why does God expect this of us? Well, look at verse 14. As obedient, what's the next word? Children. Reason number one why God expects this from us is we are his children. We are his children. Romans eight fourteen says, as many are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And what that spirit allows us to do is to cry, Abba. What's the next word? So, friends, we are his children. One of the reasons he expects us to be holy is he's holy and we are his. We belong to him. His character should be in us. What do you think should be said if God's church does not reflect God's character? Do you think that church is in trouble? Yes, I think so, friends. If God's church does not reflect God's character, we are in deep trouble today. He says, look, you're my children. How many of you think that Arabella... Adelaide and Adoniram looked something like Tara and I. You think? You think there's a resemblance? So here's my question for us. How many of us look like God? When the world looks at us, how many of them recognize who our daddy is? I can see the family resemblance. God expects holiness because we're his child. He has adopted us. He's placed his very spirit in us. So, again, a key word here is obedient children. I want to remind us of a math formula that we learned a long time ago. Ready? Knowing plus doing equals double joy. Repeat that with me. Knowing plus doing equals good, equals double joy. One more time. Knowing plus doing equals equals double joy. Here's what I mean. Knowing what God wants plus doing what God wants equals double joy. Him rejoicing over you. And you rejoicing in him. One of the reasons I think a lot of us lack joy is we lack obedience. It's one thing to know what God wants. It's another thing to do what God wants. But when we do both of these, friends, he rejoices over us and we rejoice in him. There's double joy. That's the incredible picture. And I want to encourage us, friends, know what God wants, do it. Is that simple enough for 2011? (laughs) Know what God wants, do it. Or on the other side of it, stop disobeying God. Very simple. God's holy. We are his children. And it is for our best and our joy. When we are obedient children, it is for our best 
and for our joy. I've often told you before of my mom, when I was little, I used to like to go in the clothes racks, you know, had the center clothes racks, and you could sit, get up in those, and spin around and make the clothes spin. And this was prior to, they used to not have leashes for children. I think that someone saw me and had a good idea in the store one day and said, you know, my dog needs one, so's that kid. And so uh, mom, when we would go in the store, would want me to stay close and not run. And it's not because mom's uncool. It's not because mom's unfun. It just happens that one of those times in a store, I happened to break some things, you know. And if I had heeded my mother's calling, Landon, right, if I turned back, uh, I would not have done what I did in this instance. And so one of the things that I try to help Arabella see, because last night at six o'clock, she wanted an orange slushie from Sonic, didn't you, boo? One orange slushie from Sonic. How many of you think giving a six-year-old a slushie at six o'clock is a great idea? All right, Kathy Johnson. Dear God, please help Kathy to be a grandmother that doesn't torture her kids by giving her grandkids slushies at six. So, uh, amen. Thank you, Amy. First amen Amy's ever given me. But uh, we tried to help Arabella understand It's not because we're uncool or unfun. Slushy at six is not the best idea, and parents are called to make the best decisions for children. In the same way, when God says do this or don't do this, it's not because God is unfun or uncool. It's because God loves us deeply and knows what's best. Obedience is for our best and for our joy. As obedient children, don't conform to your former ignorance. So reason number one, God expects us to be holy. We're his child. We should look like dad. We should look like that, friends. Number two, you ready for this? We know better. We know better. How many of you have ever been disciplined by a parent and they said, you know better than that? Anyone? Does that just come with it? You know better. You know, it just comes with, they give that to you when you're discharged from the hospital. The baby's going home. They give you a little packet that says, use this phrase often. You know better, right? And so here it is. We know better. Why do we know better? Look at what he says in 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You see, the difference, friends, is when God's Spirit comes in us, the lights come on. We see things different than we've ever seen them. And remember what we just read in 1 Thessalonians. I don't know if you're paying attention in 1 Thessalonians 4, but Paul is saying, you shouldn't act like the heathen who don't know God. You know God. You know better. We have been changed. Our minds are no longer darkened. So Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to the things of this world, right? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know better. We're his children, and we know better. These are two reasons why God thinks that we should be holy. Well, let me give you some ways how. When, when I was growing up, often the sermons were, you oughta and you should. Well, that's great. We know we should be holy. But why and how? I've just shared with you why, friends. We're his children. We know better. He's changed our mindset. But here's how. Here are two, two ways how. The first one is in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Both of them are right there in verse 13. So how can I be holy? How, if he expects us, how can I be holy? One of the ways that's going to help in this is preparing our minds. That's number one. And number two is being self-controlled or sober-minded, as it says in verse 13. We prepare our minds. Literally, the phrase there, how many of you have a little note that says, has a one after the word action? 
And at the very bottom, teeny tiny, it says in the Greek, girding up the loins of your mind. Do you have that in your Bible? Anyone? Subnotes? All right. All right, good. So what that's telling you is, though they've translated it, therefore, preparing your minds for action, the essence of the Greek here is girding up the loins of your mind. And so the reason that they've said, if they had said, gird up the loins of your mind, how many of you would say, well, I know exactly what that means. I gird up the loins of my mind all the time. I don't even know what girding is. And my mama wore a girdle, you know, but not like a griddle. But anyways, you know, what does it mean? To gird up the loins of your mind. And so what that means is these men would wear their robes. Remember that? How many men are glad we don't wear robes like they used to wear? I'm so grateful for wranglers. Anyways, no, not, I never wear wranglers. But they would wear these dresses, right? And it's not easy to run with a dress. I try often. It's not easy to run. And so what they would do is they would have to tuck it up and get it ready so they would be ready to move. When the Passover came, you know how they ate that, right? You know how they ate the Passover with their robes girded up so they were standing and they were ready to go when God said it. So what Peter is saying here under the influence of the Spirit is, look, we got to do that with our mind. we got to be ready to see God work and respond in instant obedience. We need to prepare our mind. Our mind should be set and prepared, ready for action at God's prompting. And I want to assure you that doesn't happen on accident. Preparing our minds should be intentional, not accidental. Friends, we want to be ready to go. Uh, some often we prepare for dates. You know, back when I was dating, you would prepare. You would brush your teeth. You would pluck your unibrows so that you actually had two eyebrows that night, you know. You would make sure you had money for the date. You would prepare for the date, right? We prepare for the holidays. How many of you prepared a meal or you prepared to host or have a party? Anyone? Anyone? All right. How many of you prepare to go to an LSU game or you prepare to watch it on TV? You make sure you got your favorite snacks and you want to invite me over this fall. Right. All right. So we prepare for these things. Here's my question. You ready? Do we prepare for holiness? Do we prepare for holiness? We're being called to it. Holiness doesn't have to be accidental, friends. It should be intentional. We're preparing our minds. How do you prepare your mind? Here's one way. Be in the word. Be in the word. Know what God wants and doesn't want. Number two, be in prayer. Talk to God. Talk to God. Preparing our mind. I'm going to see what he wants in the word, and I'm going to do it. Our students at school, my job as a dad is to prepare Arabella so that she knows the word, so that she's living it at school, so that as she grows and develops, she knows what's pleasing to him. Fathers, bring your children up in the instruction of the Lord preparing our minds for action that's one of the ways that will help us number two it says is be self-controlled or be sober-minded being sober forbids not only physical drunkenness this isn't talking about just physical drunkenness but also letting the mind wander into any other kind of mental intoxication or addiction which inhibits spiritual alertness or any laziness of mind which lulls christians into sin through carelessness how many of you have ever been foggy-minded? You've taken some medicine. I call it foggy-head. You've been foggy-headed. We can't be that way spiritually. That's what he's calling us to. Don't let anything get in, else get in your mind. Don't let anything cloud it. Don't let the world crowd your heart. When it says in Acts that they wanted men who were full of the Spirit. They were looking for the first deacons. You remember this passage in Acts 6? It says they want them full of the Spirit. The idea they're full of the Spirit means dominated. Can you say that? Dominated. Can you say that? That sounds like an early morning cry. Let's try it one more time, more guttural. Ready? Like, dominated. 
good, that's right. And so they want men who aren't just kind of friendly with the Spirit. They want men who are dominated by the Spirit. That's what that means, dominated by the Spirit. And friends, we don't want to be with our minds clouded. We want to be dominated by the holiness of God. We won't want to let anything pull us away. Now, let me show you why it's important. Look in chapter 4, verse 7 of 1 Peter. Chapter 4, verse 7 of 1 Peter. He says this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You see that? So one of the reasons that we need to be alert and not clouded is for the sake of our own prayer life. And we're not foggy minded, that we're clear, we're pursuing holiness. But one other place he says this, in chapter 5, verse 8, he says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter's writing, and so three times in this text, he's saying, Be prepared, be alert, be sober-minded. One, for the sake of your prayers. Two, so Satan doesn't consume you. So Satan doesn't devour you. And so what we want to be is alert, so that we will resist any temptation that tries to draw you away from God. In 2011, will you treat everything as an enemy that tries to draw you away from God? Or will you treat it as a partner and friend? Are you going to see these things that are drawing you away from God and treat it as the enemy they are? Are you going to continue down the path holding hands with them? Jerry Bridges, in that book I shared with you, says this, we need to cultivate in our own hearts the same hatred of sin God has. Hatred of sin is sin, not just as something disquieting or defeating to ourselves, but as displeasing to God, lies at the root of all true holiness. One thing, again, that can be a deterrent. I told you before, you want to see God's holiness, look at how he treated Christ. But friends, that should also be a deterrent. Look at how he treated Christ. Because of sin, our sin that was placed on Christ, he punished his own son. He won't spare you. He won't spare you. So as you decide, should I do this or not? First question is, does God hate this? Second, does God punish it? In one sense, God has punished Christ for our sin. But on the second hand, we want to remember, God hates this. Look at how he treated Christ because of this. Prepare your minds. Be self-controlled. Gives us to the last point. Number three. In Christ, God gives us all the holiness he requires. This is the best news of this whole passage. In Christ, God gives us all the holiness he requires. Look at the rest of verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In no way, friend, does God expect you to be holy on your own. He knows that would be a lost endeavor. We would fail in that. And that's why you need to see what happens in First Peter Look back in chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Don't miss it. You know what I love about First Peter? I love that 1 Peter 3 through 12 come before 13 through 16. And I don't mean numerically. What I mean is before God asks us to do anything, because that's what he's asking in 13 through 16, before God asks us to do anything, he shares with us what he's already done for us in 3 through 12. He's made us alive in Christ. So you see the requirement is we are to 
be holy as he is holy. The Bible says, though, that we've all sinned and fall short of that and that our righteousness is filthy rags. So what God does is he sends his very self, his very son, and he takes our place. He takes the punishment. By his stripes are we healed. So Jesus takes our place. He's our substitute in receiving the wrath of God for our sin. But then Jesus also gives us his righteousness. So, friends, we can be holy as God is holy because God gives us his very holiness in order to do it. And that's why 13 through 16 should be even more important to us because if God has made us alive with Christ in 3 through 12, he expects that to be evident in 13 through 16. If we've been made alive and he's given us this living hope, He's calling us to be holy with his own holiness that he's placed inside us. And it shouldn't be hide and seek. It shouldn't be hide and seek. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. No word of condemnation is spoken over you. You know, I love Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for whom? Those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't miss that, friends. Those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. Those who are outside Christ Jesus, condemnation. But the reason there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ is because Christ was condemned in our place. And so in trading, God gives us his holiness and says, walk in it, walk in it. So I'd like to conclude with two challenges. The first one is from Hebrews 12. I won't have you turn there, but I will have you turn in just a moment to Ephesians. But here are two challenges. In 2011, I challenge you to Hebrews 12, 14. It says this, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In 2011, I want to challenge you, don't be lackadaisical or apathetic about walking in God's holiness. We want to increase. Theologically, there's some things you should know. If we are in Christ, then we have what's called positional holiness. That's what's that's what God's saying in 1 Peter 3. Look, when I look at you, I see Jesus. So we have what theologians will call positional holiness. But then we know that sanctification is the process of growing in Christ, right? And so we have progressive holiness as well. We increase in these things year by year, sometimes slowly, right? Sometimes slowly. Let me ask, in January 2010 and January 2011, friends, have you increased in holiness in that 12-month span as the Lord added and increased in that as you have strived for holiness strive for it that's challenge number one challenge number two comes from Ephesians 4 turn there and that's where we'll close this morning Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 31 what we've seen in first Peter is that God is holy God expects his children to be holy God provides all the holiness we need in Christ Jesus. But what do we do with it? Well, one, we strive for holiness. Number two, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. That's what I'm challenging you to in 2011. Put away whatever is displeasing to him. Put it away. 
embrace whatever it is that he says that he is. Forgiving, mercy, peace, these things that we see here, tender-hearted. And I'm not asking you to do this in your own power. I've already told you, as we saw in Romans 12, it's not about being good people. It's about being gospel people, about being gospel people. The only way this is going to be possible is Christ Jesus. The only way you're going to put away this is because he causes you to increase in your hatred for the things that he hates. The only way that you'll increase and cling to what's good is because he increases your desire for this and you're being changed from the inside out. And this is what I'm calling us to. Friends, could 2011 be different than all the other years? We seem to have folks who year after year drag the same sins into each year. They drag the same little areas of disobedience into each year. Why? Why do we do this? And when will we heed the word of the Lord that says, stop? And I'm sufficient to help you overcome this. I have all you need. Could this year be different, friends? Could we make a commitment here on the first Sunday? I'm going to put away with the things that God hates. And I'm going to embrace the things that he loves, begging him to do it. So this morning, I would say, what areas in your life, friends, do we need to yield on this first Sunday? That 2011 would be different than 2010. What is it that we need to submit to him? What is it that we need to repent of? And I want to close with a final story. Stephanie's going to come. We're going to transition into a song that says, Pure and Holy Passion. Give me one pure and holy passion to follow after you. And I hope that we will mean these words as we begin. This is what the text is calling us to. I'm not calling you this because I'm a pastor. This isn't my message. I didn't write First Peter. I'm letting you know what God expects of you this year, friends. And what I'm wondering is if it's going to be true of us that we're going to follow and we're going to have one holy passion. That we want to follow him and that our life is his. We sang a song that says, reign in me. Friends, do we mean that or not? And here's where I want to close with this, this story. I was troubled because several years ago we discovered that a pastor who was very famous had been having affairs for 20 years. 20 years he'd been having affairs. And the interesting part is, on the week that it all came out, he was supposed to be preaching a marriage conference that coming weekend. And so what troubled me so much was the disconnect. We know that this pastor uh, was flying to preach at a conference. He flirted with a stewardess, got her number. He went and preached at the conference and then called that stewardess that night. How many of you would say there's a disconnect there? between the things that he's saying and what he's living. And it burdened me, but it also caused me to examine my own life. I don't want there to be a disconnect in what I preach and what I live. And God expects the same, whether you're an architect like Mr. Al, whether you work at LSU, whether you work at Ford dealerships like Mr. Don, God expects the same of us too, that what we say is what we live. Friends, it will all come out in the end. Why not repent now and find that grace and mercy so that this year would be different than any others? Don't carry that baggage of disobedience. Let's lay it down and let's let this year be different than any other. Could this year be the year that we really strive for holiness? In response, what I would like is I'd like Mr. Al to be available here at the front. And Kevin, I'll ask you to be available over here. And I just want to give you a chance. As we sing this song, Pure and Holy Passion, It doesn't matter about the words if we don't mean them, right, friends? Maybe as we begin 2011, there's something you'd like Al or Kevin or I to pray over with you just at the beginning of this this month and this year. 
we want to give you that chance as this song is, is sung. I'll pray for us. I'll ask all of us to stand. And then the front will be available. Father, we thank you for that time that we have here to preach today that you are holy is nothing new. It's a message that's been proclaimed year after year after year after year. It's a message that never stops in heaven. Even now, the four living creatures are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And God, we are so grateful that you are holy. We're grateful that your omnipotence is holy omnipotence. We're grateful that your omniscience is holy omniscience. That your presence is holy omnipresence. God, we're grateful that even your wrath is not just uncontrolled anger or emotional reactions. Even your wrath is holy wrath and directed only towards one thing, sin. God, I fear that we, maybe those who have sung the hymn, Holy, 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 and we know the melody and it's old and familiar to us like our favorite blanket or blue jeans or whatever. But yet your holiness does not seem to be gripping us. Father, this morning the text says that you're holy and that you expect it of us because you're our, our Father. You have changed us. You've put your spirit in us. And the former ignorance is supposed to be gone, so we're really without excuse. If we're continuing to walk in unholy ways, we're not like those who don't know you. We know you, and we know it's wrong. And James says that if we know the good we ought to do and don't do it, it's sin. God, so many folks carry baggage and disobedience into year after year after year. How would you work in your people here this morning that we would lay that down? We would stop disobeying you. We don't want to be fake. We can come in here week after week. We can be like that pastor who for 20 years may have fooled a congregation, but he didn't fool you. And you are all that matters. God, we don't want to pretend. We want to be laid bare this morning. Your word tells us that your eyes already search us. You know our hearts. So God, please help this not to be something that we see as impossible. For you've provided the very resource we need. You've given us Christ Jesus. Apart from him, we can't do this. But with him, we can strive for holiness this year. Father, would you let Crosspoint be a holy church? When we go about in Baton Rouge, would you let people be able to know who our dad is? May it be evident you're our father. As we turn from evil, we're walking in your ways. Maybe this morning some of us need to come to these steps and just say, I'm sorry. Maybe some of us need to come and we need to say, I need you to walk in this year. Father, move us to obedience. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand this morning? Step forward.